The opinions and statements expressed in the following program do not necessarily reflect those of WWDB, its staff, or management. Good morning. This is Greg Rump, WWDB, 860 AM, Philadelphia Talk Radio with the Middle East Forum Radio Hour. It's been a week of positive developments in the Middle East with some issues that we hold close to our hearts finally being resolved, including for the first time in a year and with the perspective of a fourth election hovering over the heads of the political parties in Israel and the voters that support them, we now have a government in Jerusalem. Now, there's some questions that we have to ask about this unity government, and I'm hoping to give you a little bit of perspective on what it looks like. We'll get to that a little bit later in the show. We also have a topic which I think is unprecedented in the annals of modern energy history and oil prices, where for the first time we saw the price of West Texas crude oil, light Brent, going for negative $43 a barrel, meaning that oil producers were paying refineries to take their stock off of them. Now, what this means is not necessarily the hampering of the American industry industry, not at this moment right now. The reason being that we see that there is a planned 75 million barrel bailout, which is being planned by President Trump to refill the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, which is the U.S.'s uh, um, supply of oil during the, the U.S. government supply of oil that it can tap into during a crisis, which is held in the salt caves which are off the coast of Louisiana and other areas in the American South. But more realistically, what does it actually portend for the Arab states, which derive much of their income, not just their income as private companies, but their incomes as states from the sale of hydrocarbon resources, both natural gas and oil. Now, beyond that, we also have to get into the topic, and we're going to talk today about this with Barack Bechtiel, the Middle East Forum Fellow for Turkish Affairs, the Charles Wax Fellow for, for Turkish Affairs, who will be joining us in eight short minutes on the program, concerning how Turkey is dealing with all of these issues. And there's also a story coming out of Turkey about them blocking Saudi and Emirati websites, which is uh, sort of this battle again for free press in Ankara, the capital of Turkey. We also have news developing out of Iran and Syria with a visit by Iranian Foreign Minister Zarif to Syria on Monday of this week for a meeting with Bashar al-Assad, continuing its nefarious activity in the region despite the coronavirus pandemic. And also one thing that I'd like to be able to speak about a little bit later in this program at the second half of our discussion is the future of um, sort of the Russia-Turkey nexus how it's affecting American Middle East policy, but also in addition to that, what's going on with some of the other areas a little bit outside the Middle East, for instance, in Afghanistan, with the effects of the pandemic affecting ongoing American peace plans there. Right now we know that there is a plan for Afghan peace between the Afghan government, the Taliban, the American government, but it seems as if though that the president of Afghanistan, Ashraf Ghani, may have been diagnosed positive with the coronavirus, the second world leader after Boris Johnson to have achieved such a diagnosis. And lastly, there's these mixed messages coming out of the White House over the last 24 hours, where on Sunday, he said that he might be willing to give coronavirus aid to Iran, 
and to relax sanctions on the country. But then again, just this morning, after Iranian fast missile boats were harassing American ships in the Persian Gulf, he said he gave orders to the American Navy that if they're harassed again, they are to destroy the Iranian boats out of the water. Literally, he said, to blow them out of the water. So here's with some of my thoughts regarding the new unity government in Jerusalem. One of the questions that I ask myself is, how exactly is Benjamin Netanyahu, for his fifth government, the fifth time that he has been sworn in as Prime Minister of Israel with a majority of its parliament supporting him, going to be able to ride out the next 18 months where he is designated to be the Prime Minister for the first rotation of this four-year term, where then Benny Gantz, the new defense minister, and his party, the Blue and White, is supposed to be able to take up the helm as prime minister for the remaining two and a half years until they're projected to go to elections four years from now. Now, first and foremost, hardly any Israeli government ever survives its full four-year term between one election and another. And I'm sure that plenty of Israelis right now are sick of the prospect of another election a year or two or even three years from now. They want to get the maximum juice for the squeeze of having to survive three separate democratic elections in one year with a cost of tens of billions of shekels to the Israeli economy. And that on top of the uh, recession which is going on now in the country, I think that the situation demanded a national unity government. But the, the, the idea that so many different tripwires have been put into this coalition agreement between Benjamin Netanyahu's Likud on the right and then Benny Gantz's blue and white party on the less right wing. I mean, this party has broken apart in the last two weeks. That's how Gantz was able to get a deal with Netanyahu. It was essentially by shedding about one half of the politicians who were supporting him up until this moment. But beyond anything else, the unity government itself is favored by the Israeli public. 63% of Israelis support the idea of there being political peace between the two largest parties in the country. But on the other hand, there is rank disagreement across the political spectrum as it relates to the other parties which have not signed on to this agreement yet. We're talking about the Amina party, we're talking about the Shas and Degel Haturan United Torah Judaism parties, which represent ultra-Orthodox Judaism in the country. And now we have a fervent opposition, which in the past was just being led by Amin Oda, the Arabist head, and Avigdor Lieberman, the head of the Israel Beitenu Russian political party. But uh, we now have joining the ranks of the opposition Moshe Ya'alon, the former defense minister, and Yair Lapid, the head of the Eshatid party, who served in a Netanyahu government some seven years ago, but now has fiercely become the antecedent to Benny Gantz, his former political partner from only a few weeks ago, saying on Israeli television earlier this week that he knew that Gantz would have pulled a move like this. Well, let's just get to the end question. Regardless of what the opposition is saying or what the National Union government is saying, the idea that there is some semblance of peace in Israeli politics when they're handling this ongoing disaster of a pandemic and unemployment somewhere around 26 or 27%. There was just an attempted suicide bombing at Teddy Stadium in Jerusalem yesterday where the Israeli Internal Security Service was able to stop three members of Hamas from launching an attack. 
and then beyond anything else which is going on in the country itself, my perspective is, is the less problems that the Israeli government has right now, I'm sure they'll find ways of creating them for themselves or their hostile neighbors will find ways to create problems for them as well in the near future. So I'm in favor of unity, but there's a few things which have to be addressed that are in this coalition agreement that I'd like to address. Number one, what are the next steps for annexation, which is an agreed upon policy perspective, according to the coalition agreement from July 1st moving on. And when I talk about annexation or sovereignty over Israeli, uh, the Israeli presence in the disputed territories in Judea and Samaria, there is this uh, segmentation that I think we have to take into consideration. So we have the American government, which is endorsing this move. Now, now, what does this move actually look like? Is this Israeli sovereignty and the application of civil law only over the areas which constitute Area C, which is where um, Israeli uh, so-called settlements or Jewish towns in the West Bank are, are located? Are they talking about a land grab over Palestinian villages, which are in Area A and B? Or is this just the application of Israeli law and not the declaration that they intend to take this land and make it permanent, at least from the Israeli government's perspective, like they did with Menachem Begin in the early 80s, declaring the Golan Heights and East Jerusalem part of Israel proper. Everything is going right now for this Israeli government. There is uh, the support of the Trump administration. There's finally a government for the first time in a year. There is the existence of support from the Israeli public for the government as well. And there is no more military might that they've been able to find versus the current strategic and qualitative military edge that they have right now, especially with the Nadir in relationships with the Arab countries. Things are going well. And on the other hand, the threats that are emerging against Israel, whether it be a reunified Syria, Hezbollah taking control of Lebanon, the Jordanian government on the precipice of canceling their peace agreement with the Israelis, or even Iran, which is the ever-present specter hanging over this, uh, 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 the, the Israeli skies, is something that we always have to look at. So let's not try to rock the boat. Let's not try to annex any territory. Let's just try to see the growing pains of this Israeli government and to see if it can survive both Israel's foreign issues and its domestic problems that may have gone silent for now, but always risk coming back up. After these messages, we'll be joined by Barack Bechtel. The Middle East Forum has been promoting American interests in the Middle East for the past 25 years. The Forum provides context, insights, and policy recommendations through its premier and most widely read Middle East journal, Middle East Quarterly publishing debates, public lectures, staff writings, arguments, and coverage of every Middle Eastern country that America operates in. From Morocco to Iran, from Turkey to Djibouti, the Middle East Quarterly is there for you. Read more at www.mequarterly.org. This is a public service announcement test from TakeMeFishing.org to determine if you need a fishing license and boat registration before heading out on the water. Let's begin. Are you a bear? Do you have a beak? Does your name rhyme with old beagle? Do you dart in front of cars? Here's a tough one. Do you have plumage? Do you rub your body against things to 
mark them. Do you have webbed feet? No, I mean like a... Were you hatched? Do you have fur? I'm not talking back here. Does your boat fly south for the winter with the other boats? Regardless of how you answer, you need to be licensed and registered because it helps local conservation efforts protect the very natural resources you enjoy boating and fishing in for generations to come. Do your part at TakeMeFishing.org. Welcome back to Middle East Forum Radio here on WWDB 860 AM. So we move on to our next subject as we await our guest Barack Bechdel for joining. I'd like to address the consequences of the dramatic drop in the price of oil as it's been present in the um, Gulf region. Now, not just applied to the U.S., which we spoke about at the opening of this segment, but also what it means for America's uh, Arab allies in the Middle East, specifically the consequences for Gulf states, including Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, and to a lesser extent, and I really could not care less for this country because of all of its inflammatory and inciting behavior, Qatar. So the Saudis have, for the better part of the last 20 years, been in lockstep with American policy as it relates, except for for a small period of time in um, 2011, 2012, when they were trying to use a rapprochement with Iran, been agreeable to American national security policy. They fought al-Qaeda in the mid-aughts after... A majority of the 9-11 hijackers were responsible for 9-11. It seems like they've been trying to, to pay back this debt that the U.S. Uh, uh, that incurred against the United States by seeing its citizens involved in the greatest terror attack to ever hit our soil. And maybe that wasn't the case so much during the Bush years. But as we saw the American government spurning away from Saudi Arabia during the Obama administration, they finally realized that they had a chance to be able to get closer to the U.S. government when Trump became president. We had that photo of the orb being touched by King Salman, the Saudi head of government, by President Trump, and Mohammed al-Sisi, uh, sorry, Abdel Fattah al-Sisi, the president of Egypt, was able to, you know, sort of uh, worm his way into getting into that picture too, showing himself as the head of the secular Arab world, whereas King Salman would have been head of the monarchists that dominate the Middle Eastern countries where that form of government is still being used. But the question is here that I'm I'm thinking that this has been able to, uh, uh, or the Saudis have been able to exercise political power because they've had the support of the oil industry behind them. They have had huge surpluses year after year. They have splurged on spending to educate their citizenry, to build up their military, to go on foreign ventures by invading Yemen and by um, uh, uh, getting themselves involved in other kerfuffles throughout the rest of the region. But the thing that's, that's, that's bothered me to a certain extent, which I know we, we haven't really addressed that much, is that now that the Saudis three years ago realized that they can't depend on the oil economy to solely bring them into the um, the 20s, into the, into the next decade, and they have tried to diversify their economy. The question is, if their diversification strategy, which is called Saudi 2030, it's their plan to wean themselves off oil or away from oil by the year 2030, 
if it's 10 years too late. The year is now 2020. Oil is selling at the lowest it's ever sold at. This doesn't just mean cheap prices at the pump for us. It means the potential devastation of Saudi tax revenue and the ability for the Saudi economy to float itself. If you are relying on your economy to be pegged or the success of your economy to be pegged to the price of oil, then you set a average per barrel amount that you need to sell your oil at in order for your national revenue to meet your national expense. So if you're pegging your um, budget at let's say a billion dollars and you're setting that billion dollars at $30 for a barrel of oil and now oil is selling not just at the negative rate that we saw in, uh, in, in Texas and in the United States, let's, let's take that to the side for a second, but at two or three dollars a barrel, you are losing 90% of your country's tax income. You're losing 90% of your revenue. And to balance this off, you have the amount of money that you projected on one side of the equation. But on the other, you have to start tapping in to your foreign currency, into your currency reserves. You might even have to start taxing your citizens. So if you combine the dearth of income, which is now flowing into these Arab states, if you combine the huge expenditures that they have committed themselves to by having a very large military, by having large national welfare programs, by sending your children abroad, and you have not saved up money for a rainy day, like is the case with Saudi Arabia right now because they have not diversified yet, then that spells a recipe for national disaster. Now, on the other hand, you have smaller countries which also still rely on oil incomes to propel the majority of their national budgets, but they have at least tried to diversify their economy. If we look at the United Arab Emirates, they have now become a center for Gulf and even global banking. They have major Fortune 500 companies which have offices in their capitals. They have become a major port and a major host to American armed forces with the largest command of any country in the United Arab Emirates. Excuse me, with the United States having its largest command out of any other countries where it's active in the UAE. It having tech companies now being the hub for the International Renewable Energy Agency. The Emiratis had their diversification strategy started in the 90s when they realized that they would not be able to float their economy just on the price of oil and natural gas alone some 20 years ago. So that's why you have the glitz and the glamour of not just the penchant for religious orthodoxy and extravagant spending that the Saudis do, but by attracting overseas expats, talent into your country, by diversifying your economy as they did some 20, 25 years ago. And that's why the Emiratis might be a little bit better off. But then we get to the third country, which, yes, has somewhat liberalized their laws as it relates to Westerners and is trying to attract Western uh, investment, largesse, respect, 
but at the same time has largely maintained their orthodoxy and their involvement in Middle Eastern skirmishes while still relying on the price of a barrel of oil to float their economy and more so natural gas since they sit on the world's uh, largest natural gas deposit. I'm speaking about Qatar in this case. The Qataris are hosting Hamas. They are hosting, Haz uh, not Hamas, they're hosting Hamas. They are hosting the Taliban. They have relations or at least had had relations with former members of Al-Qaeda. They are the only Arab state that has the closest relationship with Iran, maybe outside of Iraq, or the closest Arab state with, with Iran. And they have been spending tens of billions of dollars on huge national projects like the World Cup, the development of a national Qatari museum, trying to bring Formula One racing to the country. And all of these expenditures may be for naught. Now that tourism has dried up, there's a lockdown order, and all of a sudden, the bottom has fallen out of the oil economy, and I think Qatar has the most to lose. They try to walk the tight wire, the tightrope, between the West and the nefarious forces that are existing in the Middle East by being a uh, dual-sided belligerent on both sides of conflicts and also trying to be the savior as it relates to their involvement in other conflicts. But once Qatar runs out of money, it only spells disaster for that country because that's the only thing that has been allowing them to play both sides of a the game. They have no true friends. After these messages, I'll talk a little bit more about Turkey. The Middle East Forum promotes American interests in the Middle East and protects Western values from Middle Eastern threats. The Forum sees the region with its profusion of dictatorships, radical ideologies, existential conflicts, and weapons of mass destruction as a major source of problems for the United States. Accordingly, we urge bold measures to protect Americans and their allies. Read more at www.meforum.org or check us out on Twitter at MEForum. The Middle East Forum, protecting your interests. Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't seen your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed. And they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs. And it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover keytar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff. Create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at Goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Middle East Forum Radio here on WWDB 860 AM. While we await our Turkish guest, who, for one reason or another, this is the second week we've had Hello? some trouble trying to get him in, but I believe we are now going to be joined by Mr. Barak Bektiel, the Middle East Forum's fellow, based in Ankara, who wrote for the daily newspaper Hurriyet for 29 years until January 2017. Today he's a fellow at MEF, regularly writes for the Gatestone Institute, and has covered Turkey for the U.S. Weekly Defense News since 1997. He is also a founder of the Ankara-based think tank, Sigma. Barak, welcome to the program. Hello. Uh, can you hear us okay, Barak? Yeah, yeah. We're 
some distortions, but generally speaking, yes. Okay, so what we're going to do is we're going to cut this noise on our side when you're answering a question. So, Barack, can you tell us, how is Turkey dealing with corona? Well, uh, there are two accounts. One is the official. Uh, the other one is, 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 is rather the, the, the real account, which we don't know. Uh, because Turkey uh, started testing potential patients uh, after major delays. Uh, in the first uh, three weeks of March, the number of tests stood at 2,000 only. Now it's more than 500,000, but uh, we started uh, counting the measure quite late. So uh, with the death toll standing at around 2,200 as of today, uh, Turkey is not doing so bad, but we still don't know if that is the real picture or not, because uh, there have been warnings from, from uh, medical institutions that uh, there are several death cases recorded as pneumonia or, or, or multiple organ failure or this or that, rather than uh, coronavirus, because those patients who have passed away have not been tested. So would you assess that the government's response to the pandemic is one which is needing improvement? Or do you think that the government has finally realized the seriousness of this global disaster and they're dealing yeah, well, with it appropriately? Yeah, I, I would say both because uh, finally the government realized how serious this, this thing is getting. Uh, but on, on second thought, it is also uh, a kind of bitter reality from the Turkish perspective that uh, the government's approach is still deeply political uh, as they are seriously concerned about post-corona economic collapse, which might uh, have serious political costs to the Erdogan government. So what they're trying to do is to, to contain damage, potential economic damage, by trying to uh, downplay the, the magnitude of, 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 of the pandemic and trying to keep the procurement, logistical, and economic lines still active uh, as, of, as if uh, there's no pandemic in, in, in Turkey. Uh, they, they, they apply curfew measures several weeks after they should have, which was another reason why uh, the number of cases increased uh, exponentially in the first couple of weeks. Um, and now, now the, the, the number of cases seems to, to have stabilized, but we still don't know uh, how real is that picture. Now, can you tell me about how the Turkish economy was doing prior to the pandemic? It was already uh, teetering towards uh, a recession. It, it, it had problems. What was the status of the economy up until Corona started? Yeah, definitely, definitely. Well, I can, I can, I can say that uh, Turkey was caught by the endemic uh, at that time when its economy was was very vulnerable in terms of fundamental balances. Like uh, we're talking about um, double-digit inflation rates. Uh, we're talking about a fast depreciation of the national currency. 
We're talking about increasing uh, debt costs, interest rates, and all of that combined, there's a huge uh, public and private sector uh, foreign currency debt that makes the economy uh, quite vulnerable in terms of repayments and debt management. Uh, when we look at the trends, economic trends, uh, coupled with expectations and, and, and the collapse, post-corona uh, potential collapse, we can, we can uh, easily conclude that there will be uh, nearly 20% unemployment rate later this year. Uh, the IMF has revised Turkey's growth target to, to, to minus 5% for the year, while the Turkish government seems confident that the, the, the economic growth uh, will be sustainable, which is uh, practically a political lie. So I am guessing that some kind of a nightmare scenario from the economic point of view awaits the, the Erdogan government after the, 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 the virus. Now, you, uh, you mentioned throughout your writing for the last few years that Erdogan has been able to consolidate his um, grip on the country. He's been the most popular politician in Turkey. He has found his ability to uh, either put political enemies on the side by beating them at the ballot box or by more nefarious means, but Come the 2023 Turkish presidential elections and the now uh, growing pains of the AKP party, is there any viable contender to challenge Erdogan for leadership of the Turkish government? Well, it's too early to tell. Uh, there are potential contenders, uh, such as Ekrem Imamoğlu, the, the, the mayor of Istanbul, who defeated Erdogan's party after 25 years of Islamist rule in Turkey's biggest city, Istanbul. Uh, there are a couple of others as well, but rather than who, the, the real question uh, for 2023 will be whether the, 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 the entire opposition elements, and I'm, when I say opposition elements, I'm talking about different political parties and, and movements, whether they will stand behind this opponent, this contender, or not. Because uh, if they cannot really unite behind an opposition candidate against Erdogan, uh, it will be another comfortable win for, for the president. Now, while he has focused on defeating his domestic political enemies, there's also been a certain amount of jingoism or overseas ex uh, expeditions that Erdogan has engaged in. He has had a series of victories in Libya in the last week with the Turkish army, supporting the um, Turkish-backed Islamist government in Tripoli. He has gone on a naval foray in the eastern Mediterranean, trying to find uh, new sources of natural gas while ignoring the economic exclusive economic zones of other countries, which have been protesting, whether it's Greece, Cyprus, Israel, or Lebanon, even Syria to a certain extent. And he has moved his forces to a army base, both in uh, army bases in Syria and a new base in Qatar. So while things are not looking good on the home front, he's still pursuing overseas expeditions. How does he balance that, and how do the Turkish people look 
at his forays in foreign policy? Well, all, the, all of these uh, cross-border military operations are, are costly in the first place. Uh, but there's, 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 there's a political explanation, a political rationale behind uh, all of them. Uh, I'm trying to give you a couple of figures I'm trying to find here. Uh, yeah. For example... Uh, there are credible uh, academic uh, research papers in, in Turkey suggesting that uh, there's a general tendency among the Turks uh, to unite behind the incumbent president or government at times of crisis, such as wars, security threats, peak uh, points in, in, in terror attacks, uh, a pandemic and 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 natural disasters. Uh, this has been confirmed in past years. Uh, for example, if you look at the June 7, 2015 elections, general elections, uh, when Erdogan's AKP party lost its parliamentary majority for the first time since it came to power in, in November 2002. Uh, that was a shocking point for the government. But after this initial shock, uh, the AKP was forced into coalition negotiations with rather unwanted political partners. Uh, and at that very moment, Turkey was suddenly gripped by a wave of terror attacks, including a suicide bombing in the heart of Ankara that killed more than 100 people, which was the first single terror attack in Turkey's modern history. And in repeat elections five months later, AKP uh, increased its nationwide vote by 8.5 percentage points to 49.5 percent and uh, formed a single-party government once again. So all of these military endeavors sort of play into the militaristic, nationalistic psyche of the average Turkish voter, and they, they, they always tend to have repercussions in domestic politics. So I would assume... Uh, Behind all these calculations, uh, as much as we see neo-Ottoman assertive policy uh, inclinations on the part of Erdogan, but there's always the, the, uh, the point about domestic politics. Right, so his overseas forays build his political support back at home. Uh, Barack Bechtiel, I want to thank you for joining us this morning. And I hope that you are staying safe and uh, whatever quarantine conditions that they have, wherever you are, and that you'll join us again yeah. soon. Thanks very much. Thank you. Stay Thank safe. you. Bye. Now I'm going to go right next to our next guest. And I want to apologize to her. We went a little bit over time, but I think that an article that she wrote on April 14th is a great way to kick off her interview with her, uh, especially concerning the fact that it deals with this alliance building by the Turkish government. Before we get to that, let's introduce her properly. Irena Zuckerman is a human rights and national security attorney and analyst based in New York City. 
She has written extensively on geopolitics, security issues, and U.S. foreign policy for a variety of domestic international think tanks, such as the Washington Institute for Near East Policy and the Begin Sadat Center for Strategic Studies in Israel. Her writing is translated into multiple languages, and she has two new pieces that have come out in the last week, which we'd like to focus on today. One, on increased Iranian aggression in the time of the coronavirus, and two, the Sunni Shia Islamist geopolitical bloc that is being built by the Erdogan government. Irina, welcome to the program. Uh, hi, Greg. Thank you so much for inviting me. Of course. So you uh, had this article that came out titled, Turkey is building a geopolitical alliance between Sunni and Shia Islamists. I'm sure you heard mm -hmm. what Barack Bekdil had to say from within the region. Can you expand on his point about um, Turkey's intent for reaching out to both Sunni and Shia Islamists and what its ultimate end goal is? Uh, Erdogan is, has a clear agenda. His agenda is neo-Ottoman, is expansionist, and he is using both nationalist and religious appeal to literally any ally that he, that he is capable of conjuring up to bring that goal about. Uh, especially since he has alienated many state actors around the region, he's now reaching out to everyone else who remains, which includes Iran, which includes the Muslim Brotherhood, which includes um, governments in North Africa that are, that are supportive or open to that agenda or who have issues with their neighbors, whether or not they are directly Islamist or not. Irina, uh, I want to but... stop you for one second. I just want, would mm -hmm. like to, to help our listeners define this uh, political strategy. How do you define mm -hmm. neo-Ottomanism? Um, essentially, what Erdogan himself articulated through his analysts in the Anadolu agency not so long ago, uh, he is building a defense line um, that is essentially restoring the borders of the Ottoman Empire to, um, and possibly expanding beyond them. That's left unsaid, but is implied. It's implied through other actions. Um, for instance, the activity of Turkish intelligence in Europe. Uh, as we know, the Ottoman Empire has never been able to progress much beyond the gates of Vienna. That is something that is now being, this idea of borders is now being erased by the proliferation of intelligence agents in Europe. Otherwise, he specifically said that from Qatar to Cyprus to Libya, they consider, Turkey considers all that territory its sphere of influence. It's important for its own defense. It's def so, so Erdogan defense is trying line. to reestablish, he's trying to reestablish Turkish Ottoman-esque influence in the areas which they had ruled for the better part of a thousand years. Would that be an accurate uh, interpretation? Very much so. Very much so. Possibly well beyond that, actually. And your reference to the gates of Vienna is the Battle of Vienna in 1463, I believe, mm -hmm. where it was the high watermark of the Ottoman Empire, where they were defeated by a combined force of Austrian, Polish, and other European uh, Christian um, forces. Uh, but moving beyond the ambition of Erdogan, I'd really like to focus on the increased Iranian aggression, which we're now seeing out of Tehran. Can you give us just a real quick quick synopsis 
of how the coronavirus is affecting Iran and then pivot to how Iran is still carrying out ex extraterritorial militant and violent and terrorist activities beyond its borders. Sure. Uh, for Iran, coronavirus has been a devastating disaster. A number, a great number of uh, high-level officials and uh, uh, clergy have been have fallen ill or actually passed away due to the due to the illness. And um, the government, both the clergy, both the ayatollahs, and the politicians have mishandled it tremendously. There are two reasons for that. One is a religious reason. Uh, there's been a pushback against science, and there's been a promotion of a concept called Islamic science, which has not been clearly defined at all, and seems to have very little to do with, uh, with Islam and science in the common understanding of Muslim sciences and their peak um, during Enlightenment. Uh, so essentially it's a, a religious slash mystical slash uh, superstitious uh, gathering of ideas that has no basis in medicine and that is being heavily promoted by the religious class, by the Ayatollahs, by Ayatollah Khamenei uh, in contradiction to any norms. Uh, the, other, the other concept is political, meaning there is this um, interest in undermining anything that comes from the West and making everything seems like like a big conspiracy against Iran and attacking any group, any NGO inside Iran that is looking uh, that is looking to provide any sort of accurate information or anything that could be used as a uh, from Iran's perspective, from the regime's perspective, as a pivot point for any dissent, any criticism of government action. So they've been cracking down on NGOs looking to provide accurate information about uh, coronavirus prevention. They've been attacking um, any accurate information coming in as a Western conspiracy. And they've been saying that um, Iran doesn't need this, that the religion and Qom and the holy city of Qom are enough to sustain um, the country. They've been pushing people to visit Qom, which has been the epicenter of the epidemic, uh, and to kiss um, uh, religious shrines. And they've been promoting fake news, as they would, as they could say it, in terms of various um, unscientific ideas. Like one clergyman infamously promoted uh, a lavender suppository as a response to coronavirus. Um, that's one aspect of this issue. Second aspect is um, personalization. Uh, Iran welcomed a, a number of Chinese uh, Muslim scholars who brought the virus with them to the country. At the same time, it has been heavily proselytizing Shia and Islam in China and also around the world. Why are this proselyt uh, um, these very aggressive efforts in proselytization? Uh, it has been transferring the virus everywhere. And including a number of Muslim co countries in the region which have share population. Uh, and it, for, from uh, Iran's perspective, this exploitation of ideological revolution is far more important than any health consequences. As we have seen from, uh, from Khomeini's own writings, the number one agenda 
for the Islamic Republic is is uh, exploitation of revolutions abroad. It has not always been possible, but in late in uh, in later years, um, Iran has become much more aggressive and much more successful in ideological approach. So that's been, and all of that feeds into its larger geopolitical agenda and its overall aggression, because its aggression is focused as much as on on ideological land bridge building as an actual building of uh, connections between Iran, Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, and so forth. Right. It, it's, it's had this grand national project for the better part of the last 40 years, which it's implemented the most successfully, mm-hmm. one might argue, with Iraq and Syria in the last 10. But right now, mm-hmm. it's at the precipice of a divide between the coronavirus mm-hmm. inside the country and its desire to export its revolution and to cause havoc outside of the country. How have there the two no- how mm-hmm. have the two issues met with one another? How is it still able to fund its overseas ventures when the disaster is so hard at home? Quite simply by ignoring the crisis and not, not providing for the needs of the people at all. Arguably Ayatollah Khamenei and others have access to funding. First of all, there is uh, the discussion of a secret trust upwards of $200 billion uh, that is located somewhere and that provides the Ayatollahs and others with seemingly um, infinite funding for their various ventures. Uh, No one knows where it is exactly, how it operates, or how much money is in there. They estimate around $200 billion. We don't know. Second, quite simply stealing and diverting humanitarian aid, investment funding that was supposed to be devoted to coronavirus. Uh, Secretary Pompeo spoke of um, about $1 billion in funding, uh, public funding that was allocated towards pandemic prevention that is quite simply stolen. It disappeared. At the same time, they accept humanitarian aid and um, from European countries, from Muslim countries, um, including uh, Kuwait, UAE, and, and some others. And, and ha- ha- have there that, been have yeah. there been political consequences for the Ayatollahs because of this misbehavior? Quite the opposite. Quite the opposite. In fact, there's been a propagandist push to lift sanctions inside Iran, uh, which has been by uh, Senator Dianne Feinstein in the United States, among others, and in Europe, uh, European countries have actually worked with Iran to create uh, mechanisms for circumventing U.S. sanctions and providing Iran with both direct humanitarian aid and financial aid. So, actually, the the worse, the more Iran is using it uh, towards its own advantage while using that funding to fund its various um, military adventures abroad, uh, displaying new drones supposedly copied from the Israeli design, with which it uses to threaten Israelis, using Houthis to continuously attack uh, Saudi Arabia and increasing its aggression even outside the, bo- the right, Middle the, East. The Houthis being the uh, the rebel force in Yemen and the Saudis having their campaign uh, supporting the UN-backed uh, government there of, of some of the Sony forces. But we've done this analysis now for the past uh, 10 minutes or so on how the Iranians are actually able to exploit the coronavirus at home to fund or to support 
or to act as a distraction for, uh, with, with their overseas activities, which they've been doing for the better part of a few decades. Now, we haven't discussed uh, a paragraph that you write in your article that I'm going to quote from of how America and its allies have been dealing with this. You um, give this analysis that I'd like to push on back a little bit that you write in your article at the Begin Sadat Center from April 16th, that even if the cost of the lives of some leaders, Iran's attacks demonstrate its unbating fervor and dedication to expelling the U.S. from the region. The immediate exclusive focus on ISIS and the willingness to treat the Iraqi government as a colony of Iran plays into Iran's hands. With the U.S. increasingly treated as an unwelcome guest in the Iraq, while the U.S. government grasps at straws at to defend its relationship with Baghdad, Iran is successfully Sadar and using the cover of the coronavirus pandemic to push ahead. You then go on later in the article to point out that the U.S., while claiming an interest in rolling back Iranian influence, has put forth no vision of what that entails. It has already tacitly admitted that containment has failed, and despite tough talk from the White House, there appears to be no possibility of an internal coup to the regime from within. Rolling back Iranian ideology and outreach would require a detailed plan, close cooperation with major regional actors, ideological involvement, and dedication of financial intelligence and technological resources. And this is the crux of your argument. The U.S. is okay. in no position to dedicate itself to such a project right now, and in any case is not willing to do so. You're right. The uh, American government has flip-flopped on Iran from acting as a belligerent, almost going to war with Iran um, four months ago with the assassination of um, the head of the uh, Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps Al-Quds unit, uh, now to their responses, which were going on last year around this time, not this time, but May and June, when the Iranians were blowing holes in Western-owned oil tankers. And it's largely abated its interest in Iran until President Trump this morning responding to an increase of Iranian fast in the Persian Gulf and its usage of those fast attacks to harass American shipping, uh, Western shipping, and even an attempted takeover of a Chinese flagged vessel. And then the return of that vessel once the Iranians realized it was owned by China, where Trump says any further hostility by Iranian craft will lead to them being destroyed by the U.S. Navy. Now, that's a one-off response. It seems more out of anger than out of strategy. But how can you say that the U.S. doesn't have a strategy in Iran or dealing with the Iranians when only a few months ago it was assassinating the heads, not just head, the heads of its extraterritorial project in the Middle East? You know, can you give a little bit more clarification on your point there? Absolutely. In fact, as I've pointed out, the, that's precisely the issue, the fact that the U.S. has not been consistent. And, in fact, its lack of strategy after the killing of Qasem Soleimani and uh, some heads of the militias, it has not pursued um, a, a strategic response to Iran on all fronts. It killed a few people just to show that there was a red line in attacking and uh, killing U.S. citizens that it will not allow to be caused, and that was it. Since then, what have we seen? Um, actually, the U.S. pushed back somewhat against attacks on uh, U.S. targets in Iraq, but it has not designated any, uh, any Iraqi officials who facilitated 
those attacks and who facilitated Qasem Soleimani's attacks that led to his demise. We have seen the U.S. withdrawing, planned withdrawal, admittedly, from Iraqi bases under the pretext of the campaign against ISIS being successful. Yes, U.S. moved more forces from Syria to Iraq, but none of that has anything to do with the Iranian, with a coherent response to Iranian aggression. In Syria, it's Israel and other forces that are doing the brunt of the fight against Hezbollah and Iranian agents. I, I do want to push back a little bit on what you just said, that the U.S. has not designated any Iraqi militias responsible for attacks against Americans. Not uh, militias, officials, officials, officials. It did designate um, militias and officials, including Qatayib Hezbollah and Ahmad al Hamidawi, the head of the group which was responsible for launching mortar and rocket attacks against the American embassy in Baghdad and also other bases. And it has also designated leaders of different Syrian regime uh, artifices and uh, new sanctions on Hezbollah and Lebanon. So I think that it's fair to say that the U.S. has been tepid and lacking strategy and it's a coherent, co cohesive systematic strategy in the region, but it has shown some glimmers of hope for being able to put together some responses when it comes to direct threats against American citizens. I think that the issue here is the U.S. being seen as a reliable ally in leading the, the anti-Iranian coordination that its regional allies are asking for. But to say that there is no strategy, I don't think that's a fair statement. Uh, the strategy, as articulated by President Trump specifically, has been exclusively economic pressure and sanctions. That has not Qasem Soleimani has been a designated terrorist for years, and that has not stopped him from roaming around Iraq and uh, actually working with Iraqi politicians to smuggle oil necessary to sustain Iran's economy, which does not actually refine its oil, hasn't until very recently. Um, and to rile up the public against the United States and to engage in all sorts of subversive activities until he was finally liquidated after after the Iraq attack on uh, that killed a U.S. citizen. So the same thing with everybody else, even all those other actors who have been designated and, and sanctioned and so forth. What are the real consequences for all of them? So there's most of them don't have funds in U.S. financial system. Most of them do not travel to the West. So in reality, it's essentially fair game if the U.S. ever decides to knock them out, but most of the time, not do that. And these sanctions are not taken seriously either by our friends or by our allies. So you, as you've correctly pointed out, U.S. is seen as watching out for its own interests in a very limited and non-strategic way. And it's seen as letting the rest of the Middle East go to pieces. But the truth is we cannot separate our interests from what's going on elsewhere in the world entirely. No, I, I agree with you for most of what you're saying on that. I just think that there have from within the administration to, um, I'll only put it this way, there have been the administration that have attempted to put a coherent, cohesive, systematic strategy to fight Shia influence and Iranian aggression in the region. But of strategic focus, okay, there's strategy and then there's being able to focus on areas where strategy has to be implemented has been quite weak. But, mm -hmm. 
But if we have the ability here to elaborate a little bit beyond the uh, okay. U.S.'s ability to carry out this strategy, I would also argue that outside of Israel, the ability for the U.S. to find reliable allies in the region to work with has also sort of vexed our ability to respond to Iranian aggression. I mean, the Saudis have lost the war in Yemen. The Emiratis pulled out. The Qataris are always stabbing us in the back. The Kuwaitis are only interested in their own self-preservation. The Iraqi government, or whichever iteration of the Iraqi government that the U.S. is supporting at the time, has not been able to bring its own solace. And even the Kurds have fought with each other internally, leading them to not be a reliable ally. Now, that's not to talk about the U.S.'s betrayal of Kurds in a few instances in the last few sure. years, or the last 30 years. But um, it's been hard for the U.S. to find a reliable partner as well. There's uh, one the last comment is yours. Um, I actually, the issue is not that the uh, allies are unreliable because no ally is reliable 100% of the time. Everyone has their own interests. But that the U.S. has not been unwilling to, um, to respond to some of these issues. In Yemen, U.S. has not been much help against Hezbollah, against Iranian influence, with the exception of logistical support to Saudi. That's not sufficient. Um, overall, the U.S. has not shown any interest in working with the Saudis or anybody else on a long-term vision beyond financial sanctions. We have that on record. We don't even have any defense treaties with, with the Saudis, among others. We have vacillated between Qatar and the Saudis, despite a clear, a clear emerging of Qataris and, uh, and Iran, which has split the GCC, rendering, it, rendering that form of strategy useless. And we have done nothing to further the plan for any sort of strategic alliance consisting of allies that, that are premised in common values and vision rather than old school premises which didn't work to begin with. GCC was never functional uh, because some of the actors were always with Iran. So Irina, I'm going to have to stop. Mm -hmm. I'm going to have to stop you there. Yeah, we're, we're about before we have to end the program. Thank you very much for joining us this morning. <laughs> And I hope that we can have you on again soon. Thank you so much. It was great. Thank you. I appreciate it. This is Greg Roman here on WWDB 860 AM with the Middle East Forum Radio Hour, reporting live from with the hope that we'll be able to have you back on the program next week. I'd like to thank Marilyn Stern, our producer. Gary Gamble, our co-host, will be joining us hopefully again next week. And all of our listeners out there for joining us and on this program. Have a great day.